Once again, we want to welcome, if you're visiting with us today, we're certainly glad you've chosen to be with us. Uh, we would invite you on your way out, stop by. There's some uh, welcome packets, information packets. If you didn't pick up one of those, please grab one of those. There's also some complimentary DVDs that uh, tell you a little bit more about our church ministry, and uh, we'd love for you to have one of those as well. Um, exciting day here at Community Baptist Church. Today is our Missions Emphasis Sunday. And so I appreciate those of you who are here, those watching via the uh, live feed, which we're streaming in two places today, if I'm not mistaken, uh, LaGrange and Kinston. I'm <laughs> just kidding, that was a joke. We're streaming on Sunday streams and uh, also um, the uh, upstream. Is that correct? Yep. Uh, we're, we're experimenting with a new uh, streaming that, for those of you who have a Roku device, raise your hand if you have a Roku device at home on your TV. Good, good number of you. Uh, if you go to the Sunday Stream app, you will now be able to get Community Baptist Church uh, on that. We're still working on a few things, but uh, uh, it makes it a little easier on you uh, to access the live broadcast and also some archive broadcasts. So we're, we're still working on that. Pray for that as that ministry goes forward. Um, with that said, today is our missions emphasis and I'm excited for our guest speaker. He is a dear friend of mine, a good brother in the Lord, and his family is a precious family to my family. Uh, just a great, close kinship relationship. Uh, most of you know them and know them well. Uh, Jeremy Sams and his family, for those of you who don't know, uh, Jeremy and I grew up in the same community, and uh, he's uh, a little younger than me. Um, but uh, anyway, he, his family used to come around our neighborhood with a church van and encourage little kids to go to church on Sundays. I was one of those little kids. My parents did not take me to church, but boy, they sure made me go to church. You will get on that bus, boy. Anyway, so I would ride the church van, and uh, that is where I began to hear the gospel. That's where seeds were planted into my heart, and his family kind of took me under their wing at an early age. Most of you know my story. Uh, I departed from that straight and narrow, but at age 25, God got a hold of my life. And guess who one of the first families I went and looked up was? The Sam's family. And it was there that uh, Jeremy and I really began a, a good relationship, a good friendship, because now there could be fellowship. Uh, and uh, I am grateful to have uh, evangelist, uh, artist, first place yesterday, by the way. <laughs> Jeremy took first place in the barbecue festival down in Kinston. I think this is your third or second time? First time. Anyway, you can tell us later. But anyway, third time. That's what I thought, Crystal. See, Crystal knows. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, the winning painting, this is cool. I got to say this. The winning painting was right here on Caswell Street, the um, old Presbyterian church that's used now by the Rotary Club, Mr. Holton. And get this, he only had to walk out on the front porch of the in-law's house, go out in the yard to paint it. And so uh, that's, that was the winning picture. And it's now down in the art museum in Kinston. And uh, you get a look at that. Uh, but anyway, we are honored to have with us my good friend, brother in Christ, artist and evangelist, Jeremy Sams. All right, thank you for having me, and uh, thank you, Pastor Jeremy, for asking us to come. Uh, I'd like to share a few things with you first. I know this is Mission Sunday, 
And I've had the privilege uh, recently to, to go to Myanmar, uh, to Burma, uh, for the past couple of years uh, on a mission trip with my church. We're out of Oakview Baptist Church in High Point. So um, it's kind of funny. How do I get the... Yeah, let's go ahead and put that up. So it's kind of funny how that all started. Um, I'm an artist, and so uh, when I started going to the church there, I've been there for a couple years now, uh, got involved with the Sunday school program and things like that, and got to meet some people, and they kind of found out what I did for a living. And um, when they go to Myanmar, they go three times a year. They've been going for about four or five years now, and they're reaching out to um, a certain people group called the Dewey people. And uh, this is, that's how you spell it. But anyway, uh, the Dewey people um, are, there's about 600,000 of them in the, in the country of Myanmar. There's a small people group. There's all kinds of people groups in Myanmar. It's not just everybody speaks Burmese. They speak all kinds of things. And so anyway, Burmese is their primary language, but in Myanmar here we have, uh, let's see, how do I do this? There we go. Uh, this shows you where it's at. It borders China, Laos, Thailand, uh, India, and Bangladesh. Um, and if you see the, the country here, there's like a little leg that kind of follows down into Thailand. We actually start on the very southern tip. It's a little town called, or a little city called Khao Tong. And we actually fly into Thailand to Bangkok. And then we go over to another little city called Rainong in Thailand. And we do ministry there also. But our primary focus is the Dewey people. And in the Dewey people, um, if you actually go up this little leg, about halfway up between the bottom and the, the main part of the country, you'll, you'll have Dewey City. And there's about 600,000 people there, but there's only about 50 uh, believers out of the whole 600,000. So they're, they're relatively uh, an unreached people group. So we've been trying to make headway for the past several years to get to uh, all these people that we can find, and there's a, a large concentration of them uh, in Thailand and also in Khao Tong, the area that we're at, because it's hard to find work in Myanmar, so a lot of them will go south and go into Thailand to work, and, uh, and there's some of them in Khao Tong. It's a big fishing-type village, and so a lot of them will work on the fishing boats. There's actually a lot of, basically, slave labor there, uh, indentured servant-type things, where they'll sell themselves uh, to work. Uh, sometimes they're kidnapped, it's kind of a, an interesting situation. But they'll go on a fishing boat and they might be promised to be on there for a couple trips and end up spending like five years. Um, so they kind of get, the, the Burmese people are very um, oppressed. And so um, we've been traveling into Khao Tong and let's see, this is the way we get there. We first go to Renong. And Rainong is a, uh, a big fishing village also. And so you can imagine uh, the smell. It's, uh, it's not too pleasant. But anyway, you get, off, uh, get on the boat here, and we travel across a body of water, and we come into the city. And this is kind of what you'll see a lot in that area. They're, uh, they're Buddhist, and so you see a lot of these shrines and temples. And... Uh, this is another thing you might see. This is actually a big idol of a cobra. And 
you see all the little gifts around the cobra. This is how they try to appease their gods or to appease the spirits. So they're a very superstitious people. Ironically, though, they're very open to Christianity. One of my biggest fears of going over there for the first time was, uh, am I going to be able to apologetically defend the faith against Buddhism? And so I was studying and trying to figure out how Buddhism works and trying to, all the ins and outs, and I was so nervous about it. But what I found out was they're just religious, and they're religiously lost. And so when you go there, it's not a matter of arguing with people and their intellect about Christianity or Buddhism. They're open to hear anything. They're so hungry for anything. And so, but this is the kind of stuff that you will encounter. They're, uh, they're very superstitious, very uh, into idol worship, kind of ironic. But this is kind of what happens. Um, We'll go, uh, we, we have several, we have two local churches that we work with mainly over there. And this little lady here on the far left, uh, looking to the right, she is um, in a little village that uh, is all Buddhist, of course. But on her little house, it's kind of interesting to see, on the outside of her house, she has a little cross up in the, the top of her home. And so that's, that's kind of a big deal. You're in a Buddhist country here. You can be persecuted for any kind of other religion. And here she has a little cross in the top of her home. And she invites us in. She's crippled, so she can't go to a local church. The, local, the next local church is about, um, about nine miles away. And so the only way of travel most of the time around there is by like a moped. And so her being crippled, she can't make it to a local church. So they bring the local church to her. And so a lot of times they'll come and have just a little service with her. And, of course, we did that this day with her. And what I found out about this little lady is in her neighborhood, in her little village, we began to go two by two into each of the homes. And it had you know, like me and one of the, the pastors over there. He was a translator, so he could speak English. And so he would take me. And then we had two other guys on the trip with us. And each person had their own translator. So we kind of canvassed the whole village. And what I found out was everybody we went to and we began to preach the gospel to them, they'd say, oh, we've heard of Jesus. We heard it from Do Can You. That's her name, Do Can You. Do Can You has been telling us about Jesus. And this is kind of interesting. This little lady right here, 85 years old, she's her next door neighbor. When she heard that we were in town, she goes and gets one of the fellows and said, have him come over and give me the gospel. And so this little pastor here, this is the local pastor that I work with, he came to me and said, uh, Pastor Jimmy, and that's the way he told. He said, Pastor Jimmy, uh, lady across the street wants you to give gospel. And I said, what? I mean, I'm thinking American Christianity here. Have you ever had anybody come to you and say, hey, can you go across the street and give my mom the gospel because she wants to hear the gospel? I never had that. And so it was kind of strange for me to have this person say, can you come give me the gospel? We've heard about Jesus, but I want to hear more. And so we go over and share the gospel with this little lady. And she professed to be a believer that day. I'm not sure, you know, uh, it's kind of interesting. The, the culture difference between us and them, when, when you're there and you make a profession as a believer, that, that's great. Don't get me wrong, that's great. And we rejoice in that. But if they get baptized, that's major.
because what they're doing is they're telling their whole community, their whole family, the whole public, I am now a believer in Jesus Christ, and I am turning my back on Buddhism. So when that happens, there's a good possibility that they will be persecuted. And so a lot of times what we see is up north in Dewey City, when people make a profession of faith, uh, they tend to start investigating Christianity. And they usually receive it gladly, kind of like the good seed sower. And a lot of times what happens is before they actually make that commitment to be baptized, a lot of them will recant because they're threatened by people in the community. We've had people been beaten. Uh, we've had some, like some kids who make a profession of faith, they'll go to school and the, the schoolmaster will beat them. Uh, we've had people who lose their jobs, they lose their homes and houses. So it's kind of a big deal. So it's not so much, you know, if you make a profession of faith, we, we do rejoice in that, don't get me wrong. But we're hoping that we see a physical commitment, you know, when they follow through in baptism, because then we know it's, they're ready to die. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line. So this little lady here made a profession of faith that day. Um, we had about, I think around 10 professions um, that we could actually account for. A lot of these places we would go to, now this is another home. Um, interestingly enough, this, the, again, another culture difference. When you go there, they see this white American with this funny backpack on, automatically I'm the freak show. <laughs> I mean, they come out of the woodwork to see what is this guy doing and what's he got on his back. And So anyway, uh, once they find out what I do, these people will go and not just have one family that you're speaking to, but they'll go get like several families and their neighbors and whoever they can round up. They get them all in the home. So it's never a matter of you speaking to one or two people. It's always about 10 or 15 people at a time. And so they're just so eager to hear what you have to say. So this is in that same village. This is another village. Um, this village was actually called uh, Dewey Sioux, which means village of Dewey. So there's a heavy uh, Dewey people uh, population in this little village. And when we came to this village at first, the, the pastors told us that there's no believers here. So everybody here is an unbeliever. So they took me to this little home and um, a lot of times what we'll do, they'll have me to, to draw uh, a picture of a person or maybe to paint a little scene or something just to kind of get their interest and to kind of win over some, I guess, credibilities that we can actually talk to them. And so as I'm sketching this little lady right here, this, another little pastor here is uh, preaching the gospel to him. I have no idea what he's saying, but he was really giving it to him. <laughs> so... At the end of this, again, they had me to, to give a gospel presentation, and we had several here also that made a profession of faith. And the good thing about that, some of those people came to the same church the, the next day, the church service that we had. So that's a good sign also. If they make a commitment to actually go to the local church, um, that's a good sign. So here's one of the local churches that we work with. It's called the House of the Lord. It's at... Uh, it's actually called Seven Mile. And the way they, they name a lot of their villages is in Kaltong, it's the southernmost tip. There's the center point of the, of the village. And as you go travel out, it's one mile, two mile, three mile. Well, this is at the Seven Mile Church. And so um, 
had a good crowd. We had people come from sometimes 50 miles away for that service. That was interesting because, like I said, it's not just an easy trek. You're traveling over trails sometime, and most of them are on the back of a moped. If you've ever ridden any kind of miles on the back of a moped, it's not that fun. That's a big deal. So 50 miles for somebody to travel on the back of a moped, we were very honored. So they came to see us, and we gave them the gospel there. Um, anyway, he's got a great work here. The pastor's name is Joseph, and, uh, or Joshua, I'm sorry. And uh, him and his wife, this is these two on the end here, precious couple. Um, but uh, he's got a great work. He, he, he preaches there on Sunday morning, then travels to another church 30 miles away in the afternoon and preaches there. And he's constantly preaching and evangelizing. He's a, a tremendous Christian. And this is some of the countries. It's a beautiful place. This is actually on an island called Balontonton. <laughs> and the way we remember that is my, uh, my missions pastor who was with us, as they told us where we're going, and they said, we're going to Balontonton. He said, oh, well, they wrote a song about that. Balon, balon, balontonton. So that's how, we, <laughs> that's how we remember this place. Anyway, this was extremely hot here. It was a beautiful place, but it was extremely hot. Um, but there were several villages on this island that we got to visit. And you get to eat some great food. This was awesome. And this was uh, how they, this is how they cooked their food over an open little fire there. And that's the next day's dinner at the bottom. Um, everything is fresh, and I mean very fresh. And there's a good old chicken foot stew. Um, it looks disgusting, but I'm telling you, it's some of the best food I've ever tasted in my life. It was delicious. And you might get to see a chicken fight. We got to see several of those. I didn't put the video on here. It's kind of, kind of gross. But uh, different culture. This was my favorite part of the trip. Um, on that same island, uh, the pastor Joshua, he used to live on this island, so he wanted to go visit his neighbors. And so we went to preach the gospel to his neighbors. And we went to one one house, and they had, of course, about 15 people in there, so I, I shared a gospel presentation with them. And afterwards, uh, Joshua said, why don't you paint them a picture? I said, well, okay. And so I had to go out to the truck uh, and get my, my gear. As I'm going out to the truck, I noticed that there's a ton of people in the street. And so I came back to the house, and I told my missions pastor, I said, man, I'm going to paint out here, if you don't mind, because there are so many people out here, and I know I can get their attention. So why don't you, when I go out here and start painting, you preach the gospel to them. And so this is what happened. I set up in the street, and of course, it's like a magnet, man. They, they've never seen an artist at all, probably. And so as they come out, I began painting a portrait of Christ, his face, and had the, the crown of thorns, the blood <laughs> dripping down. And so my... My friend Don here, he's the, our missions pastor, he gets up on the ledge, man, and he just proclaims the gospel boldly, and it was, it was incredible. Um, and so we got to reach all these people with the gospel. And I told him when we first started, I said, either this is going to go really well or we're going to get arrested um, because they're, they're not a free speech country. You have to have permits to do this kind of stuff, which is basically not allowed. And so we, had a, we did keep a watchful eye on you know, if there were any authorities around, but we had no problems. And uh, anyway, it was just a, a beautiful, beautiful time. And um, 
So we ask that you just pray for Myanmar and the ministry of Oakview Baptist Church as we reach out to the Dewey people. Um, they're precious people. And so I hope that you'll, you'll pray for them. If you don't mind, turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We'll read just a couple of verses. And try to paint some stuff as I go. This is one of the messages that I took with me over to Myanmar. And we would, uh, not only would we preach the gospel in people's homes and villages, but we would... uh, try to help out some of the local churches that were there. So I would teach and, and give them a little painting demonstration as well. Just bear with me just for a little bit. Some of you guys are talking about your faith promise missions and things like that this morning. And let me just say that I am grateful uh, for people like you. Because if it weren't for people like you who give to missions, people like me would not get to go. Uh, I'm an artist. I live on an artist's salary. I can't, I can't just up and go to Southeast Asia. You know what I'm saying? So for people like you to give to missions, it enables others uh, to go and spread the gospel. So you have a part in that. You know, that's, that's incredible. I've heard a, a, a good preacher say once before, um, either you're called to go down into the well to help dig the well, or you're called to hold the rope. But either way, you will have scars. And so if you're not called to go out on missions, you are called to help support the missions. So... Again, thank you guys, and I, I deeply appreciate those in my church also who allow us to go. So John chapter 7, we're going to look at verse 37 through 39, just a couple of verses. I'm going to try my best to be as brief as I can, because I know you guys got a lot going on today. John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. So in the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity again to be here. Thank you, Lord, for the ministry here, the church people here. Uh, These are your sheep, Lord, and I know that you love them, and I know that they love you, Lord. So I pray that you will help them 
Help us today as we try to study your word, uh, that you'll give me the words to say. Help me to remember the things that I've studied. And God, most of all, that you'll be glorified through all that we do here. Lord, we thank you for what you've done so far in the service, the good songs, the good music, and the teaching in the Sunday school, and the, the encouragement to, to help out with missions. And Lord, we thank you for all that. Pray that you'll uh, encourage our hearts to, to do those things, Lord. And Lord, we're here to worship you and here to glorify you. So I pray, Lord, that through the message you will be glorified. We thank you, Lord, for all things you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. So John chapter 7, verse 37 through 39. It's kind of an interesting little thing. The way he starts off here, notice this is in kind of the last of the chapter, but it's just kind of stuck there. If you read the first of the chapter, it's like, what, what is he getting at? Where did that come from? Because the first of the chapter, if you go through here, it's a lot of, uh, a lot of discord. You've got some family members who are kind of mocking him. And then he goes up to this feast, and the people are after him. They want to kill him. And then all of a sudden, this little bit thrown right in the midst of it. And it says, in the last day, that great day of the feast. So for us to kind of get an idea of how important this invitation is, this call, well, I guess we need to have a little background. So I'm going to do a little background here also uh, on the painting. So it's talking about the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. It's also called the Feast of Ingathering. It's one of the three feasts that every male was required to attend throughout the year. And this was the last of this feast. So it was a very important feast. In fact, it was called... Um, the Feast of Rejoicing. It was one of the most glad and joyful feasts that the Jews had at that time. And so three times a year, they were required to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this was in about the end of September, October, something like that. Kind of hard for me to talk and paint at the same time. <laughs> You're just going to have to bear with me. I don't do this painting often, so I don't exactly have it memorized.
All right, so at this feast, there were several things that they would do. They had different ceremonies to accompany the feast. Um, one was called the water libation ceremony. One was the lighting of the torches. And that will be important if you read on to the next chapter, chapter 8, when Jesus proclaims that he's the light of the world. What you'll see here is that Jesus is always, in all these feasts and all these different programs and things that the, the Jews would have, Jesus is putting himself up against those things, saying that basically, I am the fulfillment of all this. And you'll see that in chapter 8 as well. All right, so there were three commands. They had together uh, four different types of branches, and they would make it into what they called a lulav. And this was like a, a branch they would wave around and rejoice and do things with like that. And they were supposed to rejoice to the Lord for seven days, and they were supposed to make a little temporary booth or little, little small tabernacles to dwell in for seven days. And so this was the requirement of the Lord, and if you read Leviticus chapter 23, basically verses 33 through 42, it talks about these requirements. And so this was all in remembering what Christ and what God did for them on their journey from the wilderness to the promised land. So for 40 years, they're in the, the wilderness, and God preserves them for 40 years. He provides water from the rock. He provides shelter. He provides food. So all these things were to be celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths. And so God has set this time aside for them basically to look back and rejoice in what God has done for them in the past. And in living those little temporary booths, it was to remind them that, hey, we used to live out in the wilderness in these little temporary dwelling places. And this is a reminder of that. They had the water libation ceremony where they would pour out water over the altar. That was a reminder that in the, in the wilderness, uh, God provided water when there was no water. And so all these things re, uh, reflected back to what God did for them in the wilderness. It also reflected on what God for, did for them in that past year. So this was the Feast of Ingathering, the feast uh, for whenever they had their fruits and all their vegetables that came in, the crop came in. And so this was their final last hurrah, and they're thanking God for all that he had done for them in this past year. And that was also prophetic, where they would look to the future and they would pray for, Lord, we pray that you will bless us with more crops next year, bless us with rain. Uh, and then also, we're looking forward to this Messiah who will come and who will uh, usher in this new era where we will have water producing from us. And there's other verses that we'll see in, in that later. So in all these things, we have the background. You have this, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Ingathering. Uh, these different ceremonies they had had. So let's look now at the invitation, John 7, 37. In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. So first thing that I see here is the compassion of the call. Compassion. Notice what it says. Jesus stood and cried. Now, this is amazing to me because it was very custom for teachers in that day when they taught, they would sit and teach. 
But yet it says here, in this feast, all these people around, Jesus is not just sitting here teaching as a rabbi would, but he stands. So notice his posture. He stands and cries. Now, why would you stand? You've got this group around you. Why would you want to stand? You want to stand because you want everybody to hear you. And so I see the compassion in his posture. He stood and cried. It means he's shouting with deep emotion, a cry of urgency. And yet it's ironic to me that it's not the dying who are the ones crying out, but it's Christ. He's the one who has compassion on them. And he's crying out to the dying, saying, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So we see his compassion in his cry. We also see his compassion in who he cries to. Look back here at verse 5 of chapter 7. We have unbelievers. He have his unbelieving family. In the per- first part of the chapter, his brothers tell him, hey, you know, if you want to be known, then you should go to this feast openly and do some tricks for them. Let them know who you are. Get some followers. If that's who you are, then go do that. But yet in verse 5 it tells us, for neither did his brothers believe in him. His family was unbelieving, and yet they are here in the midst. Also, we have not just unbelieving family, we have those who wanted to kill him. If you go to verse 19 and also verse 25, it says in verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you keepeth the law? Why go ye about to kill me? And also in verse 25, Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? So in this crowd we have those who seek to take his life. And also in the same crowd, we have those who wanted to arrest him. You see that in verse 30 and 32. And we have also the chief priests and Pharisees. So basically in this whole crowd, you have a a diverse group, mostly unbelievers. But you had some who wanted him dead. You had a lot who wanted him arrested. Yet in all this, we see his compassion. He's crying out to even his greatest enemies. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And he says that to his greatest enemies. Now let that be a lesson to us. As we go out to the day, we see even our greatest enemies. Let his cry go out to them as, as well. I see in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, the compassion of Christ. And when he's speaking to Jerusalem, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together? even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, and you would not. So in all these things, we have the compassion of Christ. He's always reaching out. He's always taking the initiative in salvation, looking for the lost and looking for the unsaved and looking for those who hate him. So we have his compassion. Secondly, we have the comprehensiveness of the call. How big is this call? The gospel call goes out to everyone. He said, if any man thirsts. If any man thirsts, that's a radical statement to a Jewish listener of that day. Because to a Jewish listener, they're thinking, well, salvation is for us, for the Jew. The Gentiles are dogs. and We don't want anything to do with the Gentile. And yet here he says, if any man thirsts. So in this call, it goes out to everyone. He uses universal language here, which was a total radical concept of his time. It overcomes so many different barriers. And how we need this today. 
We live in a land that is so divided with different politics and different colors and different ethnicities and different views on this and that. And yet Jesus says, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. So in this statement, he overcomes so many barriers. He overcomes racial barriers. It doesn't matter if you're black or white or brown or yellow, whatever color or nationality or ethnicity, whatever creed, whatever you are, doesn't matter how bad of a sinner you are, the gospel call goes out to everyone. It is universal. In Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1, this reminds me a lot. It's almost a paraphrase of that same verse. It says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. For why do you spend money for that which does not satisfy? And so this whole call goes out to everyone. This is the way we should give the gospel. The gospel call should go out to everyone. We should not be hesitant or be prejudiced in our gospel giving. It should go out to everyone. But yet, we have the comprehensiveness of the call. We also have the condition of the call. Every time John, here in his gospel, uses universal language, he always gives it a condition. Uh, there's always... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, I'll get back to that later. That happens to me sometimes, if you haven't noticed. I'll, I'll just forget like a simple word. Anyway, maybe I'm, I've ate too much paint. So the, the gospel call goes out to everyone, but yet there is a condition to the call. It says, if anyone, if any man thirst, there is our condition. If any man is thirsty. So being thirsty, I ask myself, what does it mean to be thirsty? So if I had to define thirst. Here's what I wrote in my notes. This is very simple. Being thirsty is a conscious realization of a physical need of water. But it's a conscious realization. So here's what happens to me a lot. I'm not sure if you're like me or not, but I have, uh, I seem like I, uh, I, I'm always um, dehydrated. Uh, I'm just naturally like that. My skin is always dry. I always forget to drink water. Um, she's laughing over here because if I go out and paint, one of the last things she always says to me, and I go outside and paint, you know, uh, she'll say, Jeremy, did you get your water? And so I'm always making sure, yeah, I got my water. But what happens is I go out there and I get so involved in my painting, I got my stuff set up and I'm out here in this beautiful, you know, setting and I'm painting as fast as I can because the light's changing, the wind's blowing, it's getting ready to rain and whatever, and I'm just so involved in what I'm doing that I just... I forget to drink. And by the end of the session, you know, three hours later, I'm like, man, I'm thirsty. I forgot to drink this whole time. And so being thirsty is a conscious realization of a need for water. Well, that goes over into the spiritual world as well. Because the problem is every man's thirsty. We're all thirsty for something, but we don't even know that we're thirsty. We don't even realize. We don't have a conscious realization that we are thirsty. And so, being thirsty is a conscious realization of physical need of water. So the greatest obstacle in your evangelism and in my evangelism, the greatest obstacle you will have on this mission trip that you're going to do locally here, is not getting men saved. Because God does that. And that's easy. He can do that like that. 
Your biggest obstacle is getting men to thirst. Your biggest obstacle is getting men lost. Salvation is easy on God's part. But on your part, you've got to show them they're thirsty. You've got to reveal to them that they are lost. They've got to see themselves as lost and as thirsty. They will never come to the water source unless they realize that they are thirsty. So there's a condition to the call. He says here, if any man thirst. Now thirst is a blessing and a curse. It's a curse because every man suffers from it. Every one of us. Man, but man in his natural state does not recognize Christ as the thirst quencher. We are designed to be thirsty. We are designed to be unsatisfied. And so God made us this way because he wants us to constantly pursue him. But yet man in his natural state, they, they don't understand that. They don't see that. So it's a curse. Man in his natural state is a rebel against God. He does not seek after God. He's at enmity with God. Um, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Uh, they've exchanged truth for a lie. They suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And why do they do all these things? They do all these things because men love darkness rather than light. It is the nature of man. It's funny to me that the same nature we have here, the same nature they have in Burma. Every man has a fallen nature. We are born in Adam, and because of Adam's one sin, then we have all partaken in that sinful nature, and now we are all condemned. And so here we are, we're in a ruined state, a totally depraved state, if you want to use that kind of language. So men love darkness rather than light. Therefore, men seek to satisfy their thirst through every other means instead of Christ. This is why we do the things we do. We're constantly thirsty, but we're trying to satisfy the thirst through other means. And not all the means are wicked. Uh, basically, everything that we're trying to do is trying to capture joy. We're in a pursuit of joy because that's ultimately what we want. The reason we go watch a football game is to get joy out of it. The reason a man drinks uh, alcoholic beverage is to get some joy out of it. The reason a man looks at pornography is to get some joy out of it. And the list goes on and on. But it doesn't always have to be the evil things. You could dwell all day there, but sometimes it's just normal things. We pursue relationships because we're looking for joy. We pursue education because we're looking for joy. All these different things are in uh, a constant battle for our attention. They're a constant battle for the desires of our heart. And yet Jesus stands here and says, if any man thirst, come to me. So he's telling us that your thirst is designed so that you will come to me. You will not find satisfaction in anything else but him. And that's the way it goes. The reason a man has to drink not just one beer but two beers is because the one doesn't satisfy. And all these things. You can do something for a while and eventually you get bored of it. And I'm finding now that boredom is a grace of God. Because in the things that we take pleasures in, you, you know... How many of you guys have Netflix? I do. 
Have you ever binged watched a certain show? You watch it and you watch the next episode and you, next, you watch the next episode and you keep on watching it. I've done that before. You waste hours doing it, but then all of a sudden at the very end you're kind of like, man, I'm kind of bored with this. I've got to move on to something different. And so our hearts are designed to be uh, unsatisfied unless we're satisfied in Christ. So it's a, a blessing and a curse. The blessing of thirst is that God has so designed our hearts so that nothing can satisfy us except Christ. And that is the blessing part of it. So that God will not let you be satisfied with anything but himself. And he is our greatest need. So we have the compassion of the call. We have the comprehensiveness of the call. We have the condition of the call. Next we have the commands of the call. Notice what he says here. Jesus stood and cried saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. Two commands in that little verse. The first one is, come unto me. Come unto me. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith, or should be the object of our faith. And we have in, in chapter, if you look at Isaiah chapter 12, turn there real quick. In this libation ceremony, this water pouring ceremony, what you would have is you had this big group of people and they would have this parade of people and they're all rejoicing. The high priest would take this golden pitcher and he would walk down to the pool of Siloam. He'd fill this golden pitcher up with water. Then they'd make their way back to the temple. And this whole procession, they're, they're waving their lulavs and they're rejoicing. They're singing songs. They're reciting verses. Then they get back to the altar. And on the last day of the feast, they go around the altar seven times. They're shouting the shofar horns, and they're rejoicing, having a big time. It's a big show. So on this last day, they circle around the altar seven times with this picture of water. After the seventh time, they were pour the water out over the altar, and this is one of the passages that they would read. Isaiah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> and it says, In that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee, Though thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Then they pour the water out. Now, can you imagine? Now, I don't know the timing of this because John doesn't say the timing. But we do know it's the last day of the feast, the great day. So at some point in the day, this has happened. They've poured out the water, and they recite Isaiah 12, 3, talking about, with joy, draw water out of the wells of salvation. Can you imagine that as soon as he said that, what if Jesus stands up at that time and says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. Do you want to draw water out of the wells of salvation? I'm your well. I am salvation for you. And yet he cries out to these people in this ceremony, I would think, I'm reading between the lines here, but I think there would be a good possibility that he does. But can you imagine being there and seeing that? Jesus standing there saying, I am the fulfillment of this. You want wells of salvation? I am your salvation. 
So we have the command to come to him. Then he says here also, come to me and drink. He explains this in verse 38 and 38. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. So coming to him to drink is believing in him. This is figurative language. He does this also in John chapter 6, verse 35. Where he's talking about him being the bread of life. He says, if I'm the bread of life. If any man hunger, let him come unto me. If any man thirst, let him believe on me. So there's that figurative language parallel. It's saying coming to Christ is the same as drinking Christ. And we know coming to Christ is not about geographic location. It's not about me going from point A to point B, coming to him physically. That's not what he's saying there. He's saying, come to me and drink. He's saying here, basically, believe in me. So we are commanded here to come to him. He should be the object of our salvation. He is the object of our faith. <clears throat> then the second part, we are to drink of him. We are to believe in him. And what does it mean to believe? This is what it looks like to believe. This is what he's giving us here. Because we're commanded all through scripture to believe in him. So what does that mean, to believe? Does this mean to believe in a set of facts? To believe in at a certain date he died? Maybe even to believe in a doctrine, a certain doctrine. Is that all that it is, just to believe in that? No. The devils believe in those things, and they're, they're not saved. So it's not just a mental assent as to who Christ is, or to what he's done, or that he is a historical figure. It's not just a mental assent, but it is... A seeing him as water that satisfies. It's seeing him as the ultimate desire of our heart. It's seeing him as the most purest, truest, supreme treasure that we could have so that we would get rid of everything if it meant having him. He has to be the treasure of our heart, of our life. And so that's what it means to believe. It's not just believing in facts or doctrine, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, repeating a prayer, saying a magic little catchphrase. Man, I did that a hundred times. I'm not even joking. That's not a, no exaggeration. As a child growing up in a Baptist church, I went through the same basically modern gospel techniques as most every other church member probably has. And I repeated the prayers. I went down to the aisle. I, I mean, I got on the altar. I, I did all those things and asked Jesus into my heart literally about a hundred times. If I had any kind of doubts, I would have let me pray and ask Jesus in my heart again. Maybe I didn't say it quite right. Maybe I didn't mean it. And I did all these things trying to, trying to find peace with God. But at the end of the day, I, I had no peace with God. And it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I realized what faith was. It was just a matter of trusting in what he has done. I remember praying out, crying out to God in my own little way, just a small child saying, God, I don't know what else to do. Now, I didn't hear any kind of audible voice, nothing like that, nothing weird. But he spoke to my heart and said, Jeremy, there's nothing you can do. I've already done it all. Just trust me. And at that point is when I realized that's what faith is. It's not a matter of what I can do. I was putting my hope in what I was doing. I was putting my hope in did I say it right? Did I use the right terminology? Did I really, really mean it? And all those things, I was putting my hope in what I was doing. And it wasn't until I figured out that I have to just rest in what he has done. Then my eyes were opened, 
and I felt peace and I understood what faith was and I got assurance of my salvation. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing when you come to this chapter like this. He says, He that believeth on me, the scripture has said, I was belly shall flow rivers of living water. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And this is interesting too because what it says there is this is a present tense verb. Come unto me and drink. Present tense. It's not just a one-time act. So many times we have a view of salvation that all you got to do is believe one time. You just make this little effort to believe and the rest of your life can do what you want. That's not true saving faith. Belief in Christ is a continual believing. It is a continual drinking at him, the fountain. So when it says here, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink, we are to be continually drinking from Christ. People have asked me on so many occasions, well, how do you know that you're saved? My response used to be, well, when I was such and such years old, I repeated a prayer, and I did this and that, and I'd go through and talk about what I did at one time. When people ask me that now, I don't respond that way. Because here's the, here's the thing. If I were to ask you, are you alive? What would you tell me? You would say yes. I'd say, okay, well, where's your evidence? You probably would not say, hang on, let me go get my birth certificate, and I'll show you when I was born. I'll point to the date. It's written in the back of my Bible. You probably won't do that, will you? You probably just say, man, check my pulse. I'm alive. That's the way we know we're alive spiritually. We don't go back, or I don't go back to a certain date. You can if you want to, that's fine. But the real test of are you a believer is are you breathing? Is your heart beating for God? Are you believing today? Doesn't matter what you did, made a profession years ago. Are you believing today? So. We have the compassion of the call, the comprehensiveness of the call, the condition of the call, the commands of the call, and also, lastly, the conclusion of the call, or the results of obeying the call. You become a channel of the Holy Spirit. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, there are many scriptures throughout the Old Testament that refer to water pouring out. Um, I chose Isaiah 44, verse 3, because I think it's very fitting. It says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. So when we drink of Christ, we become a channel of the Holy Spirit. We become a conduit. So as we're drinking in, his spirit is flowing out. So this is the Christian life. This is what it means as we are believing, that we are constantly putting out the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Spirit. Notice what it says. It doesn't say just to a river. It says rivers, rivers of living water. We have life-giving water pouring out of us, out from us. And that's interesting, too. It's not a surface change. It's coming from the belly, from the heart. It comes from, out, from inside working its way out. This is the Christian life. So the main point here is not about filling of the Holy Spirit. The main point here is about flowing of the Holy Spirit. As we drink in Christ, He flows into us and to others. This is why missions is so important. Because if we're drinking in Christ, 
we will be pouring out to others. This is the formula here. There is no exception. It's not a matter of you drinking in and nothing comes out. That's not what it says. If you're drinking in, it will come out. So here's my question, and I have to examine my own life too. If I'm not flowing out, what am I doing? Where's my problem at? My problem is probably not some kind of weird blockage. My problem is that I'm not drinking Christ. I'm not doing my part in believing in Christ. I am not trusting Christ. I'm not feasting on Christ. I'm not drinking in Christ like I should be. And so therefore, I'm not flowing out. So when, those, when the rivers begin to trickle, begin to start slowing down, I need to start examining my life. And so the same thing here, it goes for missions. As we are drinking in Christ, we will flow out to others. So maybe you're here today, and I don't know your hearts. I see a lot of new faces, and that's a huge blessing. So I'd have to ask you, are, have, have you drank from Christ? Are you thirsty? Do you see yourself as a sinner? Do you see yourself as wretched and unable to come to God on your own? Christ has paid the penalty that we all deserve. For your sins and my sins, he died on the cross willingly. He lived a perfect, sinless life, never sinned in thought, word, or deed, and yet gave himself, took on my sin and your sin on himself, and all of God's wrath was emptied on his son, and he died in our place. And three days later, he rose again. And now, because he was delivered for our offenses, he was raised for our justification. He came back to life, and now we can legally be declared righteous in God's court of law because of what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. So if you're here today, you've never partaken in Christ, you never drank in Christ, I asked you, come and drink. It's an open invitation. He says, come unto me, whoever you are, come and drink. And maybe if you're like me sometimes, the rivers are not flowing out like they should be. Maybe it gets down to a little trickle. Come back to Christ. Keep drinking Christ. Keep desiring Christ. Pray to him, Lord, be the object of my desires. Just be honest with him. I have to do that on so many occasions because I find myself getting dry and I have to say, Lord, I'm drying up and I don't know what I'm doing wrong, but can you, can you help me? Will you be the object of my desire? So I'm going to try to finish this painting and my wife is going to sing a couple songs. And Pastor, you close.
I'm going to ask Jeremy and Crystal if you'll go ahead and make your way to the back and greet our folks as they head out. Been reminded of the importance of the mission, the message, the gospel. Jeremy mentioned about the rope and the lowering uh, of the bucket into the well, and I'd heard maybe the same preacher had referenced the Corinthians passage where you remember the Apostle Paul was escaping for his life and he was lowered in a bucket by a rope over the wall of Damascus. Somebody was holding that rope. Somebody was lowering that rope. If somebody's not holding that rope to let him down, he's not able to do what the Apostle Paul did. We are rope holders. Community Baptist Church. It's our responsibility, and we can't let go of that rope. And the way we hold that rope for our missionaries is financially and through prayer. I invite you to help hold the rope. A couple of ways you can do it. In your bulletin, there's one of these. I want you to take this. I want you to look on the back. And I want you to consider praying for a missionary. This sheet says, I'm going to pray for this missionary. We'll send you updates. We'll send you their personal letters so you'll know what's going on in their life and in their mission. So all you need to do is sign your name on this one, circle who you want to pray for, and begin praying for them. We'll keep you updated. That's what this one is. Every one of us can and should do that. And then I have another slip of paper, and I'm going to set this on the back table on your way out. This one says that I'm willing to financially support. It shows our weekly need, our monthly need, and our yearly. Now, some of you came today prepared to give a one-time gift. Praise the Lord for you. If you didn't put that in the offering, you feel free to drop it on the table on your way out, and we are thankful for that. But we're asking you to commit prayerfully. What would God have you do as he provides through you to support missions. Help hold the rope. This form do not turn in. This is for you to put in your Bible as a reminder as you prayerfully seek God to use you financially in support of missions. For those of you who are faithfully and consistently given, thank you. I challenge us all in that to take a step of faith to increase by faith what we might do. But statistically, over half of you are not supporting missions. We can't hold the rope by ourselves. We need you to help. Ask God what he'd have you do, even if it's a small amount. A small amount amongst a lot of people will go a long ways. Just be obedient to what God would have you do. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the message of the gospel. Thank you that in believing in Christ, there is a wellspring of life that flows in us and through us. Help us to be reminded, Lord, as we have opportunity this summer to do a local missions work here in the community, that many will volunteer, many will step forward, many will be willing to be used of you. And Lord, I pray now that as we go, we'll not allow the 
enemy to pluck the seed. You guard that, Lord. Only you can. And I pray that uh, as the praise team sings and, and as we dismiss, that, Lord, we will be mindful of our responsibility in holding the rope. We pray for our missionaries that you continue to use them at the spread of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. As the praise team plays, you don't have to stick around. We're going to go ahead and open the doors. But as they, as they sing, if you'll go ahead and head out and uh, greet Jeremy and Crystal. And thank you all. Have a good afternoon.